case, we are going to have a look at the uh, story of the shepherds. And there's some interesting little points uh, to kind of have a look at along the way. Some sort of historical stuff that kind of paints a nice picture of what was actually going on in the first century there. And then I've got a question that I want us to discuss together um, as we move forward. So we're going to read the story. It comes from the book of Luke. Uh, so Luke is one of the four stories about Jesus' life, four biographies, if you will. And this one was written by a doctor who um, did not was not part of uh, Jesus' disciples, but was researching all of this uh, for a guy called Theophilus. Um, and so he's, he's researching all of the events about Jesus' life, and this is the story he tells about the shepherds. So right after the birth of Jesus, it says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Okay, so there's this really rich history of shepherding in the Bible. In fact, several of the biggest Old Testament heroes, so heroes of history before Jesus, were shepherds or started out as shepherds. So Abraham, who's considered the father of the faith, uh, he was a shepherd when he first started. He, he had many flocks of sheep and he would travel them around. Uh, King David, also one of the greatest figures in the Old Testament, was a shepherd in his youth. But that doesn't mean that everybody liked shepherds. There is some evidence to suggest that in the first century, shepherds were kind of considered pretty lowly. Uh, it was a sort of a menial job at best, and at worst, they were considered dishonest, and they were considered a little bit sort of not your, not your good sort of people in a lot of ways. So they had this reputation, deserved or not, that's kind of this reputation that they had. Uh, they were untrustworthy or untrusted, I should say, and unlikable by society. Oh, another interesting note. It is says there that they were living in the fields. I don't know if you caught that or not, but in those days, the shepherds would live out in the fields looking after the sheep, which suggests that it possibly happens during summer months or warmer months rather than winter months, which is kind of a sort of a fun little spanner. We kind of traditionally think of Christmas being in December, December 25th, that's Jesus' birthday, right? But that's just simply a day that we use to commemorate Jesus' birthday. His birthday very unlikely to be December 25th, in fact, it could have been a whole different time of year. Like Queen's birthday weekend. You know, we use it to celebrate it, but that doesn't necessarily mean. So if someone says to you, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, we can prove it, just agree with them because that's probably the truth. But that doesn't mean Jesus wasn't born. Right? just means that we celebrate it on that day. Finally, another little fun note about the shepherds. They were outside of Bethlehem, right? So they are looking after a flock of sheep within sight of Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. So there is a chance, and we can't prove this or anything like that, but there is a chance that the sheep that the shepherds were looking after were being raised to be used as temple sacrifices. Uh, that would have made sense. They would have sourced those sheep from local farmers. So the shepherds then, if that's true, had left all of these sacrificial sheep in order to go visit the ultimate sacrifice, the one who would replace all of those sheep. It's kind of a fun little thing to think about. Anyway, so they're in there. They're in the fields. You can do with that what you will. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. So angel appearances in the Bible, not that common. Okay, so we kind of, as we read it, it seems like there's a lot of Bible, a lot of angel appearances in the Bible, but actually there's really only a handful. There's um, 
I'm not sure how many exactly, but it's just a small collection over about 4,000 years since the creation up until this point. Angels only turn up every now and then. But it's worth noting that in the story of the birth of Jesus, there are no less than seven angel appearances within a matter of a year. So that's a lot. It's a very intense time of angel messaging. Angels are messages from God, so their um, presence signifies how important this whole period is. It shows that a big moment in history. And then it says that the, the shepherds were terrified. This is the natural response to seeing an angel, right? I don't know if you've, you kind of, sometimes we get this picture of angels as little babies or as sort of like petite girls with, with wings and all of this sort of stuff and they're all very calm and beautiful and it's lovely. But the angels that are in the Bible almost always elicit a response of fear, which means that they were scary to look at. And this is the glory of God. They would have been warrior-type angels, and they would have scared them out of everybody. So this is not surprising that every time they turn up, they have to say, don't be afraid. <laughs> it's okay. I come in peace. So the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will be great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. This is the big news that everyone in Israel had been waiting for. They have been waiting for this news for 1,500 years or more. This news that in the city of David there would be the Messiah. It was huge. So in addition to the shock of seeing an angel, they're now trying to process the fact that thousand-year-old prophecies are coming true today. It's a big night for the shepherds. A lot to take in there. And then he says, You will recognize them by the sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Probably not a lot of babies lying in mangers and feeding troughs in stables around Bethlehem at the time, so it's a pretty good indicator. But that's the right one. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. So the one angel is joined now by a whole host. We don't even know how many thousands of angels maybe. So if angel appearances are rare, hosts of angels are incredibly rare. In fact, there may be only two or three people in all of human history who have seen something like this. Running through the stories in my mind, I know Judah had a dream about a staircase of angels. There was, um, Elisha saw an army of angels surrounding one city. John saw Revelation. That's about it. That's about the full list of people who got to see it. And they got to see it in real life. No visions, nothing like that, no dreams. Just thousands of angels coming. It's incredibly rare. And then the angels returned to heaven. The shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger, the feeding trough. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, 
glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Remember that reaction. It was just as the angel had told them. So, happy day for the shepherds, right? They get to peek in on one of the most important moments in all of human history. The moment where that all of history had built up to. That everything had been pointing to this moment. The birth of God's special Messiah. What an amazing experience for them. These shepherds. But this is my question. Why them? Why shepherds? Why do they get to see it? If you had news that important, important enough that a host of angels is giving it to you, or enough to send an army of angels, sorry, to pronounce it, so this is God, and you're thinking, I've got to send it to someone, why would you give that news to some of the least important people in all of the land? It doesn't seem to fit. And that's why I'm talking about the shepherds today, because I don't think it seems like they don't fit into the story very well. But this is my question that I want to discuss with you. This is what I want to put out here to the group. Why does God share his big news with shepherds? What does this tell us about who God is? This is the part where you talk. Why do you think he would share it with shepherds, the least important people of all? Because they were the least important. Because they were the least important. But why is that important? Why is it important that least important? Why, why go to the least important? What is it about that? Yeah. So it's like the lowest common denominator. Like everyone's able to hear and receive this message. If the lowest okay. So while well, you're saying the lowest common denominator, meaning that um, if this message is important for this level of people, then these people don't get to hear it, but everybody above that level gets to hear it. It's like security clearance or something like that. So he gives it to the lowest level in society so that it's free for everybody. No one feels like they can be left out. Very interesting. Anything else? I can see the hand. There it is. Lilia. Uh, kind of like that idea that uh, God's strength shows through the weakness and kind Ooh. of the, the lowest of people, kind of like how he chose Israel and stuff because it was weak and small. Mm. Uh, maybe it's similar to these... Um, Shepherds, because you know, if you say like like you said, people didn't believe in them, people didn't um, you know like them, they were lowly. And also, you think about how you know Jesus, when he was older, used to tell people not to tell everyone about his miracles and stuff because he didn't want people. He didn't not that he didn't want the word to spread, but he just didn't want those people to spread it. Maybe it's something similar in that sense that sure. lowly people may also like they um, did yeah, they couldn't help it. Yeah. But neither did the people Jesus told to not spread yeah. it. They spread it as well. So let me just um, recap what you're saying here. So you're saying it's um, kind of like Israel itself, chosen God, chooses the weak. Like we talked about last week, he chooses the, the weak and the unimportant to show his power through them. Okay, very interesting, yeah. Kenzie? Okay, so he chose the shepherds because they would believe it. 
very interesting. I wanted to kind of actually have a look at this, at some of the different reactions that we have. So when you think about who you would, like if, if I was in charge and I had this message, who would I tell? Because I want to get this word out and I want to kind of, it's a huge deal. Who would I tell? Like political leaders, religious leaders, right? Those are the two most important and influential people in all of the land. So they could really spread this word out. Let's have a look at some passages. Um, this is going to be Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. This is a reaction of the political leader when he found out about Jesus. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He had sent the wise men to locate baby Jesus, come back to him and tell him where he was. He said so he could worship him. That's not what he wanted to do. He sent soldiers to kill all of the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. So Herod was so upset and so hateful towards this baby Jesus who was being called King of the Jews, which was his rightful title. And so he's like, I'm just going to kill everybody who he might possibly be. I'm just going to wipe all of the boys out two years and under just so I can cover all my bases. I do not want this kid getting out. That's the political leader's reaction. The religious leader's reaction, we get to see this a little bit later on when Jesus grows up and he starts doing his, his teaching and stuff. There's so many passages, but let's have a look at Luke 20.20. 20. Because um, this is, just sums up exactly how they reacted to Jesus. Watching for their opportunity, the leaders sent spies pretending to be honest men. They tried to get Jesus to say something that could be reported to the Roman governor so that he would arrest Jesus. Other places, they, they, they plotted together to kill him. So political leader tried to kill Jesus. Religious leaders actually did kill Jesus. Of course, he was okay with that. That was part of the plan. So these are the reactions of our influential, important people. Now let's go back to the reaction of the, of the um, shepherds in Luke 2, 16, 17, and 20, like we read before. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, they didn't kill the baby. The shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Think about the difference in reactions to who Jesus is. Right from the get-go, we have this map that is going to play out throughout the next 30 years of his life. You've got the people who are unimportant, who are reacting to Jesus in a positive way. They are accepting him. They are praising God for who he is. But the important people find him irritable, challenging, and ultimately are in their way and they want to get rid of him. So yeah, I think that's why he sent him to the shepherds. One of the reasons he sent them to the shepherds. It's about attitude. It's an attitude of humility versus arrogance. God is not looking for importance, but humility. And self-awareness of our position before God. See, that's the thing about the shepherds. And... Again, when Jesus goes and he works amongst people, he works amongst the sinners and you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all of these people that everybody else is looking down on. Do you know why he says that? Why he works with them? 
Because they know they need God. They understand what is missing in their life. They understand that they are lowly. What the Pharisees and the political leaders did not understand was they were lowly too. But they didn't think they were. And so that attitude of arrogance got in their way and it butted heads with who Jesus was. There's something else I think um, that I want to go back to this, and I think this kind of uh, touches on what Lilia was talking about, about this, the way God's method, the way that he does things, is he lifts up the lowly. If we go back, Fiona, to that first section of verses there, uh, well, the second section, I think, Luke 1, 51 to 53. This is part of a song that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings before the birth of Jesus. So like this is like 10 verses before our um, passage about the, the, the shepherds. This is what she says about God. His mighty arm does, has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. Haughty, what a great word. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted or lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and he sent the rich away with empty hands. Look again in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. By the way, notice how many times, how many of these passages are pulled out by Luke. Luke is telling this story about how people react and how God works. This is what we like to call Jesus' mission statement. He walks into a synagogue, he opens up the scroll, and he reads this Old Testament prophecy, and he says, this is me. Okay, so this is his life's work. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to who? The poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. Moving on again, Luke 13.30 kind of sums it up even more. He says, note this. Some who least seem least important now will be the greatest then in the kingdom of God in heaven. And some who are greatest now will be least important then. He is taking our idea of importance and he is turning it upside down. Because it is not about position. It is not about your wealth. It is not about how good you're doing in life. It is about how you think about and how you submit to who God is. And so the lowly, the oppressed, they are seeking out him out. And he is accepting of that. And so he turns the table and lifts up the humble. And he pushes down the proud. So that brings us to the next question. What does that mean for us? What do the shepherds tell us? What is their message for us? And I think there's two things. There's a challenge and an encouragement. And my first thing, the challenge is for us to adopt a posture of humility, meaning an attitude, the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about God is one of humility. We see ourselves as lowly. We don't do that to be more like the shepherds. We do that because we realize we are like the shepherds. The Bible is very clear about how we stand before God. He's up here, we're down here. That's by nature of, of the mistakes that we make, the things that we do wrong. 
And so when we realize the gulf between us and God, we have this sense of humility, not self-degradation, not I'm a bad person, I'm horrible, woe is me, because that's kind of thinking about ourselves, isn't it? We're just kind of beating up on ourselves. I do this. I know this. Familiar feeling. But instead it's a, wow, God, you are so much bigger than me. And I'm in awe of who you are. That's humility. There's the stories of Jesus tell us that when we have an attitude of pride or self-importance, we find ourselves butting heads with Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? I don't know if you've noticed that in your own life, but I have. Sometimes we just find ourselves butting heads with what God seems to want. And we're arguing against Scripture. We're kind of pushing back and we say, but why, why me? Or why, why has this happened to me? Or, or why are you not doing this, God? And we kind of have this looking him in the eye type argument with God. And it seems like he keeps pushing us down and pushing us back. And we see from the stories in Jesus' time that every time someone raised themselves up to the level of Jesus and tried to challenge him, he challenged them back and pushed them back down. But... Those who adopt a posture of humility find that God's arms come down and lift them back up. It's the heart that we have towards Him. I love this this story of, of prayer. Jesus is telling a story of a Pharisee, so one of the religious leaders is praying, and a tax collector, one of the common known sinners, is praying. Have a listen to, to the way he describes this. This one is uh, Luke 18, 9-14. When Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a despised tax collector. You know, boo, tax collector. Moving on. <clears throat> Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. That's where you get a sparkle on his teeth. Yeah. Moving on. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Next verse. I tell you, Jesus says, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. And this is it. This is the key right here. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted, lifted up, encouraged. So our challenge is to see ourselves, not to kind of ignore and have a sense of like, well, I know I'm good, but I should act like I'm humble so that God will accept me. Because that's not humility, that's just lying to yourself. But rather to see ourselves in light of who God is and who we are. And to realize that we are absolutely in need of who He is. Throw ourselves at His feet and then be lifted up by Him. And encouraged by Him. And then our confidence, because we will have confidence, but our confidence comes not in my ability to live a righteous life or to live a good life, but in God's power living in me to live a good life, to 
help me, to give me strength. When we have that humility, I think he blesses us for that. And that's what the shepherds tell us. But they tell us one more thing real quick. And I am wrapping this up. We can take courage when we do feel sidelined in society or unimportant or useless or worthless. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I know I have. And there's a lot of different reasons why we might feel like we don't matter. It might be our education. It might be the job that we have. It might be the income that we have. It might be the debt that we have. It might be our marital status or lack thereof. It might be the brokenness in our families or it might be the addictions that we have. It could be all number of things that make us feel like we don't belong. Like if we were at the nativity, we wouldn't belong there either. There's one particular thing that I think is important for our community, and it's important for me, that makes us feel this way, and that is the varying amounts of mental health issues that are floating around that I deal with, and I know people here deal with as well. Depression, anxiety, ADD, bipolar, there's all sorts of different ailments that can hold us back. And sometimes when we feel that way, we feel like we are less people, lesser people, because we're dealing with these issues. And we watch people move forward in their lives and they're making great decisions and they are just full of life and are full of vigor and are full of success, whatever that might look like. And we're just lagging behind and we just feel like we just can't break through. I felt that. I feel that pretty much on a monthly basis. <laughs> and I don't want this to kind of elicit a response of, oh, poor Hamish. We feel bad for him. Because you shouldn't. Because when I'm in that space and when I feel like I just don't amount to anything, I am squarely in the crosshairs of who God is coming to reach. I'm the one he's coming for. And whenever you feel that way, I want to encourage you. I want the shepherds to encourage you that they had nowhere to go in life. They were were nondescript in their society. But God chose them to receive the most magnificent news anyone has ever heard before in their lives. They were the ones. They were the most important people God could think of to share his news with. And that's us. When we feel that way, we know that we are in that space. So I want to encourage you. I know Christmas is going to be a time for some people that is going to be harder than most. There's going to be times where you feel down. There's going to be times where family gets you down, where life situations get you down. And you feel like that you are back here and everyone is moving forward. But God's back here too. Right there with you. Arms around you, leading you forward. Remember that this Christmas. Let's pray.